for those of you who are joining us by tape, we just finished our first course on the first portion of the larger chapters and having to deal with the good of God. And uh, we've got to open the prayer. Uh, we'd like to just remind you of what our textbooks are for the course. Uh, I already mentioned that uh, we should have the reference to confession of faith and catechism with proof text. The easiest way to do that is to get the Free Church of Scotland's publication. I have the older one with the smaller and very difficult to read. And it's in a uh, new, nice, larger print, available to you. And we'll be using that as the introduction to every new section of theology that we go through. Uh, if you are interested in getting a uh, harmony of the Westminster Presbyterian Standards, that is, um, we have a book here, The Codes of Affection, the Catechism Questions, aside for the same topics. Um, I think that Tim is going to make this available if you want to do some photocopying those of you I, You have a of your own, that's great. These are hard to come by, they're out of print, but if you ever see them, pick it up. Uh, uh, James Benjamin Dean's uh, Harmony of the Westminster Standards. This is not a required test, but you may find it really helpful. And if it is going to be photocopied, perhaps you want to put in your order. So the uh, confession is the major textbook. There are, as far as I know, there is, as far as I know, only one commentary uh, in English on the larger catechism. There are a number of commentaries on the shorter catechism. Um, at least two of which I can think of are still available in print, and of course there are four, well, three or four commentaries on the Confession of Faith. But I've only, in all my education, and this is not the top line forte for me, but I've been running the one commentary on the larger catechism, and it's uh, Ridgely's uh, Body of Divinity. Let me give you the full title up here. A body of divinity wherein the doctrines of the Christian religion are explained and defended, being the substance of several lectures on the Assembly's larger catechism. And uh, this is Thomas Ridgely, R-I-D-G-L-E-Y. As you see, I have a nice leather band. It's in four volumes, three of which I've been able uh, to get. If anyone runs across the ground on this side, I'd be glad to pay three bucks. This is the only commentary on the larger catechism that I'm aware of. The interesting thing about commentaries is that they tend to reflect uh, their own times. Um, so as you read Richley, for instance, it's in particular second generation Westminster and Calvinistic theology, some of which, because of improvements that we've seen in the 20th century, now the 20th century, we'd look at and say, that's a little bit questionable. Some of it is archaic and deals with social issues or problems that we don't run into. But it's still valuable to have commentaries like these if you can get hold of them. The reason the catechisms were written is so that theology could be taught. Theology was not supposed to be, especially in Protestant perspective, Simply the um, exclusive domain of the priests, or the ministers, if you want to use the Protestant word, the pastors of the churches. Theology was supposed to get 
outside the elite circle of the ordained into the hands of God's people. In order to accomplish that, catechetical instruction was used. Um, obviously, catechetical instruction means you ask a question, the question systematically goes through what you want to cover, and the answers give the substance of your theology. And uh, we think of catechisms as being directed to children. Uh, people who grew up in the Roman Catholic circles know that the catechism for the first communion, and they're better than the Catholic historical Presbyterian churches of the catechism. Lutherans use catechism for the but in our mind, catechism denotes instruction for children. That is not historically, however, the way you should understand it. In fact, we have taken, which is rather unique, I don't know anybody just these days that does it, we have taken for our class the larger catechism as our text because it was written specifically by the Westminster Divines to teach adults the theology of the confession of faith. It was not corrected at children, it was corrected at adults. And the Parliament requested that there be a shorter catechism in order that children might have a head start so that later on when they can even change about theology, the larger catechism would be no problem for them. And as you know, and I've been one of the masters for shorter catechism, which is for children. In fact, what we have in our circles, and I, and I love the little book, and I'm not meaning to put it down, but we have a children's catechism, which, if you will, might be considered a shorter, shorter catechism, and uh, the larger catechism is largely. However, we are going to try to do what the Puritans had in mind and use the larger catechism to teach us theology. Now, I told you, however, that when you look at a commentary like Gibbs or if you look at the commentaries on the shorter catechism, they reflect their day and age. Theology is not a static subject. It's not a matter of uh, learning just so many propositions, so many questions, and then you finally will. You know, you've got it. We have, in every generation, in every age, to apply the Word of God to the people and the hearts of the people that we run into, to the problems of our day, to the questions that arise in our day. There are questions that arose in the 19th century that seem to us now completely irrelevant. And there are questions that have arisen today with respect to the system of doctrine and the scripture that people in the 19th century would have never considered, never would have come to their mind. And so, I do want to use the catechism, but I'm convinced that we also need to do supplemental work. It's not enough just to memorize these things. In order to see how the answers are applied, we're going to go to a classic period of Reformed theology, the Princeton period, in the 19th century, and we're going to use, as our second textbook, the Outlines of Theology by A.A. A. Hodge. Somebody might say, well, why didn't you just go to his father's three-volume work, Systematic Theology, which was the classic work for the Princetonian uh, outlook on theology? Well, can you all see from my dust jacket here what the subtitle is? For Students and Laymen. Good portion of Charles Hodges' work is in Latin. <laughs> uh, I was always smart enough in seminary to read that enough. It would be three quarters of a page Latin. And you'd say, well, so much for that. <laughs> because in that day and age, to go to seminary, you had to know Greek and Hebrew and Latin. And so it didn't bother you to do that sort of thing. But that's not the only reason. That's three volumes. This is one. 
And as I understand the historical setting, A.A. Hodge was attempting to do, kind of attempting to do here in the 20th century. And so I think it's worth going back and making use of it. He's got uh, kind of a review of theology in question-answer format as well. And so we're going to, if, if you will, kind of systematize Reformed theology, the Westminster theology, in its classic Princetonian form by looking at A.A. Hodge. But you know, A.A. Hodge wasn't the last living theology either. Neither was Dr. Bonson for that matter. No one's had the last living theology. But the problems of the 1880s and 1890s are not the problems of uh, the 1980s and the 1990s. And so the third level of study does not have a textbook in our course, but uh, we'll have to do with review questions that I've prepared for uh, presbytery exams and things from my own seminary training that I'd like to bring to bear to supplement our catechetical instruction, our Princetonian instruction, and hopefully we'll bring this up to date. This is going to be a massive course. If you do it right, there ain't going to be anything like anywhere else, and hopefully it will prove not just to be a, a, a unique thing, a white elephant, but it will prove to be something very valuable, which are all going to grow by this. So enough space. I have a lecture for you tonight that I'm going to pass out. I'm not going to pass out. I'm going to pass the lecture out. They are already collated in totally different ways. You just take it set. Because I'd like to do something on the historical setting of the assembly. Some of you will probably already have this paper from the Sunday school class I did uh, a couple of years ago, as I recall. I originally was going to just fly through this stuff on my own. I got to thinking, well, I have it written up. You might as well have it in front of you, and you'll get more from it, and you can go ahead and read it on your own as well. So the first thing we're going to do on our course is going, is going to look at the historical setting. the Westminster Standards. The word standards uh, I will use uh, to stand for the confession, the larger and the shorter catechism. That is the three standards used in Westminster circles to this theological outlook. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what this lecture is going to try to accomplish. We'll give you some of that. But a brief, out, a brief answer is the 1640s, at the time of the Puritan Revolution. Okay, to understand the setting of the Westminster Assembly, we have to go back more than a century in English history and review key events. I'm going to hop around here. It's going to be brief. You remember Henry VIII? fellow who got rid of his wives because they wouldn't bear sons for him and so forth. Uh, most people don't know that he had one time been honored by the Roman Catholic Pope for opposing Lutheran theology. And uh, the divorce, uh, well, pardon the pun, the, um, the split between Henry and the Roman Catholic Pope that came about had to do uh, absolutely nothing at all with theology then. Had a question of whether his divorce would be legitimated so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. Uh, this brought a political break with Roman Catholicism, but not a theological one. Uh, notice that at this time, the church in England operated under the auspices, not of its own courts, but of the Pope. What Henry brought about, he's considered the, 
the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in England. But all he brought about was uh, transferring authority from a foreign pope to a domestic king. But in both cases, what we have, well, what we have here is the state governing the church. Henry being the king, governing the church, that's what we call a rationalism. Now his son, Edward VI, came to the throne in 1547, and this was a time where Calvinistic leaders were uh, favored. They introduced reform, truly reform doctrine now, into England. But in 1553, Mary Tudor uh, became queen. She was intolerant, she was Roman Catholic, so intolerant that she became known as Bloody Mary because of her persecution of the Protestants and the Calvinists in particular. Uh, when her half-sister Elizabeth became queen in 1558, uh, she disliked both the Romanists and the Calvinists. And the only reason she restored Protestantism was out of political expediency. Uh, during her reign, the 39 Articles were completed, which, uh, if you've ever read them, you'll see are basically Calvinistic in their outlook. Uh, her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, not to be confused with Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, uh, her cousin uh, was a Roman Catholic, who was uh, opposed by John Knox in Scotland. Uh, Mary in Scotland was executed at the order of Elizabeth. So this family, they didn't get along very well. Now, Mary's son is James of Scotland, and he comes to be known as James I of England. So that's a little confusing. He's best known for the King James Bible, which was authorized, the translation that was authorized under his reign. Uh, James, perhaps best known for his view of the divine right of kings, and ins he insisted that the divine right of kings had to be reflected in church government because of the Episcopal form of government. I mean, he insisted on the Episcopal form of government for that reason. And I put down here in the note here his famous declaration, no bishop, no king. And so we will have bishops, we will have Episcopal form of government, because if we get rid of that in the church, the next step is no king in the state. Maybe he had something there. Uh, and so he disdained the Puritans because they opposed Episcopacy. Uh, he also disliked them for the Sabbath scriptures and other things. And you notice certain political tensions developed during this race. In 1625, comes to the throne Charles I. Now, I've been very hurried here because that's all background. But you understand some of the forces that are at work. When Charles comes to the throne, he proves to be a real monster. Um, he appointed William Laud as archbishop, a man who hated the Calvinists and bitterly persecuted the Puritans. In fact, it was under Laud's persecution that many of them immigrated to America. Um, the English Parliament, on the other hand, was sympathetic to the Puritan party in the church, and it's not surprising then that by the year 1629, we see that Charles dared to dissolve the English Parliament. Now think about that. The king says, there will be no more Parliament. That's not the way we're going to be ruled here. I'm going to be the ruler, and that's it. Um, he had two infamous courts that advanced uh, his unpopularity with the people. The Star Chamber, that is still a, a phrase that is symbolic of a tyrannical kangaroo court, Star Chamber, and the High Commission, the Ecclesiastical Court. 
this sentence is important. In these days and circumstances, it became increasingly clear that the issue of royal absolutism had to be fought on both sides, ecclesiastical and civil. Those leading the ecclesiastical battle against the absolutism of the king and the church were the Puritans, and those who were leading the civil strife against royal absolutism was the English Parliament. But as we said, the English Parliament had been dissolved by the king. Then a note is given here about the situation in Scotland. Um, the reforming efforts of Knox uh, bringing about a Presbyterian form of government, but then the struggle to impose Episcopalian, Episcopalianism back on Scotland, leading to the famous story of Jenny Geddes uh, throwing her milking stool at Bishop of the Edinburgh Church. Uh, all of Scotland uh, sought a national in 1638 to resist this intrusion to protect the religious liberty and Presbyterian polity of Scotland. Um, they realized, of course, that that would bring the, uh, the opposition of the king in a field. War broke out between Scotland and England in the year 1639, and it's only for that reason that Charles finally reconvened the English Parliament. Why? Because he wanted to tax the people, and he knew that he had to have a parliament to do that, at least to do it effectively. And so this parliament met for less than a month. This is just a humorous piece of history. And that's why it's known now as the short parliament. He had them long enough to get what he wanted, tax money, and then dissolve it again. Um, he, certain grievances were addressed to the king, and so he dissolved the parliament. Later, he suffered a strategic loss to the Scottish army, however, and he reconvened the parliament in November. This is called the Long Parliament, because this is the parliament that's going to get rid of the king. They do stay in power then. This parliament impeached and imprisoned the heads of the Star Chamber and the High Commission, passed a law forbidding the king to dissolve parliament ever again. <laughs> and this is, this is really strange because if you think of modern warfare and so forth, you have to, you have to go back to the days where there were horses and, and foot soldiers and spears and, and bows and arrows and things like that. Because what happens is there in London and in all of England, the king and the parliament start gathering troops to fight each other. And it's not like tomorrow they go to war. I mean, it's evident there's a tension. And so they start, you know, there'd be posters up to sign up for the, for the army or, you know, to be drafted into, or to be enlisted into service uh, to help one side or the other of this um, a conflict that was coming. In 1642, the king fled London, civil war erupted, and notice this, the Anglicans and the Romans sided with the king. There are under philosophical and theological reasons for that. That's not all political. They naturally would tend to go with the king, whereas those in the parliamentary party aligned with the Puritans. And now notice this parenthesis. It's going to be crucial later. A lot of people don't understand why the Puritans you know, didn't get along, because the Puritans um, included two different outlooks on church government, two outlooks on, on the way the uh, church should be governed. There were Presbyterian Puritans, and there were what we call separatist Puritans, uh, or independent congregational Puritans. In the midst of this conflict, the King Parliament summoned the Westminster Assembly. And so why am I giving you all this history, but this is it. 
Because it's now in this situation that the Westminster Assembly was called. In January of 1643, Parliament finally abolished the Episcopal system of government and its liturgical trappings in the English church. In May, then in June, respectively, the Commons and the Lords enacted a bill authorizing 121 of the most godly and theologically astute men of England to assemble on church at Westminster Abbey for the stated purpose of advising Parliament on the reformation of the liturgy, discipline, and government of the Church of England, as well as vindication and clarification of its doctrine. That sentence has been crafted purposely. What we remember the Westminster Assembly for was almost a PS to its purpose. The clarification and vindication of the doctrine of the United Realm was like, I won't say literally, but nearly an afterthought. The main reason the Westminster Assembly got together was to reform the liturgy, discipline, and government of the church. It was Episcopalianism that they were fighting. While they were at it, they said, we might as well unite the kingdom, you know, the three kingdoms, with the same doctrine. So uh, they wrote a confession and made a catechism. Okay, during the summer that the Westminster Assembly began to meet, 1643, the parliamentary army suffered devastating setbacks, became urgent for the parliament to secure the assistance of Scotland in the war. Uh, and so, the English parliament was with the Scottish rebels. Don't forget this name, because it is crucial in Presbyterian history. And they called it the Solemn League and Covenant. Though I think it's irrelevant in the 20th century, the fact is my reformed Presbyterian brothers are their right. Scotland lived, excuse me, England lives uh, in violation of the Solemn League and Covenant. They broke it. But they entered into this covenant um, calling for an endeavor to bring the religion of England, Scotland, and Ireland into uniformity, calling for the preservation of reformed doctrine, worship, and government in Scotland, and the reformation of the English church according to the word of God, an example of the best reformed churches. Bottom line, Presbyterian government as the proper form of church government throughout the world. And so, with the Solemn League and Covenant, notice this, the Scots say, you want us to help you in a military battle? Then you've got to agree with us religiously. And that means form of government. I can't imagine in the 20th century people even being understood if they bargain that way. They say, you want dinner with you? And you do our form of government. They say, who cares? People lost their lives for the Presbyterian form of government. That's what I'd like you to pick up on. The parliamentary army was reorganized in 1644, the new model army. And who did that? Uh, that's right, Oliver Cromwell. Leading to important victories at Marston, Moore, and Nasby. In late spring of 46, the king was compelled to surrender but, and here's the problem, dissension developed within the parliamentary party between the Puritans themselves. The Puritan separatists and the Puritan Presbyterians couldn't get along. Uh, the Presbyterians would have allowed Charles to return to the government um, as a limited monarch and would have insisted on reformed faith and Presbyterian government in the church. The separatists wanted nothing to do with Charles. In fact, they were later executed, as a matter of fact and they will not tolerate Presbyterianism in the government of the church. Notice the Presbyterians were in the majority, both in the parliament and among the citizens of London, apparently. What did the separatists have going for them? The military, Oliver Cromwell. And so the parliament and the army quarreled, 
And when that happens, who do you think is going to win? Those who get the weapons. And that's what happened. Um, when the parliament and king finally came to terms, the army forcibly intervened and seized the king on June the 3rd, demanded that 11 Presbyterian leaders in the House of Commons be ejected, and when the citizens of London protested, the army marched upon the city and took possession of it on the 7th of August. In the midst of all of this, the king escaped to the Isle of Wight, interestingly. Attempting to take advantage of the split between Parliament and Cromwell's army, the king, King Charles, negotiated with the Scots for support. And this is amazing. They said, okay, uh, because they felt the right thing was to restore the king, limited monarch, get back to Presbyterian form of government, and live their lives. A solemn legal covenant, they thought, would call for this. And, um, of course, Oliver Cromwell would have nothing to do with it. And so now there's going to be war between Scotland and England. A lot of people understand that. How is it that the Scots came to help the English, and then they ended up fighting the English? Well, now you know the answer. This is something about uh, Well, took matters into his uh, own hands, as I say at the end of his paragraph. Uh, I cannot say much in favor of Oliver Cromwell and the way that this was prosecuted. Uh, he tended to be very cruel to the Scots. Uh, in December of 48, he excluded 143 Presbyterians from the House of Commons by force. This is known in history as Pride's Purge, leaving, and this is the first time this language is used, the Rump Parliament, only about 60 members. Uh, the Rump Parliament then tried Charles for treason and in January of 49 beheaded the king. Then Oliver uh, Cromwell reorganized the state as a commonwealth. He would be the Lord Protector for life. Um, and as I say here in the middle of this paragraph, England had sadly come full circle from a tyrannical king under episcopacy to a despotic protector under independency. Uh, I would like you to just meditate for an hour sometime on that sentence. That uh, political liberty you see, could not be protected by efficiency or efficiency. In the end, they uh, finally come down to one-man rule. Presbyterianism is, the, I think, the biblical model of church government, and it is necessary to be reflected in the state as well for the liberties of the citizens of the state. But uh, Cromwell was able to keep that up after his death. Uh, the protectorate was overthrown. And what happens in England after this? This is a sad thing. Puritan revolution is gone. Because now you have Roman Catholics that come back to the throne. Anglicanism becomes the official um, religion of the empire. Uh, active uniformity requires ministers to assent to the Book of Common Prayer and repudiate the National Covenant. Notice this, 2,000 Presbyterians lost their positions because they refused to do that. Um, and the rest of the history of England is known to you. This is the political setting in which the Westminster Assembly was called. I still remember the first time I grew up uh, in an overseas church and heard, uh, you know, glowing words about the Westminster Assembly and, and the Confession of Catechisms. And to be honest with you, I think I had kind of a, uh, a paradise model of the circumstances under which they met. I mean, it must have been really ideal, you know. But it was just thrashing civil war in London and England and so forth. And um, the, the victory of that confession well, in the first place, uh, the confession never was ratified in London, in England, in the form that it was written. So it was in Scotland, however. 
And the interesting thing is, though this is an English product, it's in Scotland that we finally have the, the adoption of these standards and in the history of uh, Western Church uh, passed on to the rest of us and kept uh, historically. Go back now to the year 1643, though. In the midst of all that we're talking about that historical setting, here is the Parliament calling an assembly of divines to reform um, the kingdom. There's a sense in which Alexander Henderson of Scotland, who credited with the idea for the assembly, even though he didn't call it, in 1641, a peace commission to London, he had drawn up a paper suggesting the advantage of such a thing. In 1642, English Parliament had passed a bill uh, to call leading divines to such a convention. The king refused to consent to it. There were further efforts, and it was uh, not until the king fled London that the parliament finally authorized the assembly. Notice that this is the sixth bill. <coughs> uh, the first five failed. The sixth one they finally did on June 12, 1643. And the intended purpose of the assembly was primarily to reorganize the Church of England in its government and worship, and only secondarily to clarify and vindicate its doctrine. In the subsequent course of history, the latter will become what the assembly is best known for. Uh, most of this you can read on your own from this point on. Notice that an earnest effort was made to get a truly representative gathering. The assembly originally met July 1st, 1643. Um, by autumn they had moved into the Jerusalem chamber where all the rest of their work was done. Uh, the assembly was known for praying for hours at a time before they did their theological work, very godly men. The first thing they did is to revise the 39 articles. Um, but by the time they got to Article 15 of 39, the Solemn Leading Covenant had been signed, and Scottish commissioners, as a, as a show of unity, had been sent to the assembly. So the assembly began without the Scottish commissioners, remember that. They came as a result of the Solemn Leading Covenant. On October 12th, uh, the Parliament suspended the revision of the 39 Articles and said, give us a new confession of faith. Now, this new formulation and summary would become known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. It has 33 chapters. Uh, it was begun in August. We're doing well. It's we're taking some time to do it. Okay, 27 months to write this. They finished it in December of 1646. Um, there were ideological tensions within the assembly. Uh, they were primarily directed at such things as church government and, and liturgy. After receiving the first set of chapters, uh, the House of Commons requested that the assembly go back to work and provide scripture proofs in the margins. They were hesitant to do this. The reason is not because they didn't honor scripture, but because they realized they'd spent all this time, 27 months, debating the theology, and they had not on the floor debated the scripture proofs. That shows you how much they were committed to parliamentary procedure. It's detested in our day, and we're getting patient with it. They said, we'd have to go back and redo the whole thing because we have to debate each one of us. Well, they did. In April 1647, they had their scripture groups. And then uh, the last items to be taken up by the assembly were the preparation of a larger catechism and a shorter catechism. The former served as a popular tool for teaching the theology of the confession, and the shorter catechism intended to do the same for children. 
documents were largely the work, you probably want to note this, were largely the work of um, A. Tuckney, I believe it's Anthony, but anyway, A. Tuckney, who was especially aided in the larger catechism by the use of um, Usher's Body of Divinity. And another man by the name of John Wallace helped, especially in the shorter catechism. These two catechisms were completed, um, respectively, in October and November of 1647. Okay, you can read some commentary on the assembly, and you also have some sheets toward the end of this packet that integrate um, all the historical events into a little chronology. Yes. James Usher, whose body of divinity did, was he the chief force in the Irish articles? Uh, yes, he was. Right, and when the Westminster divines began to revise the 39 articles, uh, they looked to Usher's work, and in particular, that work was the most influential in writing of the confession, as far as using something of a model. Yeah. Any other questions about the historical setting of what we're going to be setting together? Uh, what was maybe an idea for the reorganization of the church government and worship? What, was, what, what would be one of the examples of the main purpose of that body to be together? Well, the first thing they worked on, I think you'll note there, I hope I have this right, the first thing they worked on was ordination, the standards of ordination and the method of ordination. So, I mean, they were dealing with things having to do with how the church should be governed and how the church should worship. And uh, that's because Episcopalianism is what they were fighting. They wanted to revise the government and the worship of the church. The worship of the church under Episcopalianism required the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, okay, and then monarchical bishops. And those two things being thrown out, and the question is, well, how should the church be governed, and how should the church worship and pray and do ordination? Yeah. I the idea that the... Uh that all churches in England would be required to subscribe to the standards of their I believe that the answer is yes. I believe that a common form of church government was uh, sought after. It would be Presbyterianism. Uh, and the interesting question, and I'm, I'm edging a bit because I'm not absolutely sure. The interesting question is, would the Presbyterians have allowed the independents to go their own way if they didn't want Presbyterian form government? I'm not sure, but I don't think so. I think they did want a common form of government. But, here's the kicker, because they so strenuously taught that the government of the church was separate from the government of the state, I think the Presbyterians should have been forced by the logic of the position to say, this is what uh, we recommend to the Parliament, but while we're at it, we should tell the Parliament it's none of your business. If you're going to have a full Presbyterian, but at the same time, we should tell you it's not your business to impose it. But I think Parliament would have done so in answer to your question. And in that sense, maybe I should distinguish between the answer that I think the Assembly would have given and what the Parliament would have given. I think the Parliament would have imposed it. I don't think the Assembly would have. You got me. I'm not sure. His influence was not in the Oh, in the substance of uh, the doctrine of God and soteriology and so forth. Okay.
Before you go home tonight, I'd like to at least make a stab at the Westminster Doctrine of Scripture. I'll explain that I'm going to give a little bit more time and emphasis to this doctrine than I will on the other low side theology, not only because it is so crucial to settle in theological disputes, we have the right epistemology, how do you know uh, your theological convincing, but also because uh, the Westminster Confession has the model Protestant expression of doctrine of scripture. Just about anybody would say that is the, I mean, just everything's beautiful in there, but the doctrine of scripture is stated fully and exactly in a way that you won't find in any other confession, any other Protestant confession. So we'll spend some time then on the Westminster doctrine of scripture. begin with an article on scripture. It is uh, most common to begin confession of faith of your creed with the doctrine of God. The first and second Helvetic confessions in the Irish articles, as far as I know, are the only other reformed creeds that begin with the doctrine of scripture. The Irish articles, written by James Usher, uh, were perhaps uh, the most influential in writing the Westminster Confession of Faith. The second thing, the second most important source would have been the body of divinity, which was Usher's Catechism. So James Usher is very important in the uh, directing of Westminster theology. Uh, in the French and Belgian Confessions, the doctrine of Scripture doesn't come in until the third chapter. Uh, in the Scots Confession, Scripture is dealt with in Article 19. bring that up just to illustrate my point. The Westminster Confession is unique, not only because of the position it gives the Scripture, but because of the treatment and the accuracy of the treatment offered on the doctrine of Scripture. And really incomparable in the, in the precision that is given in stating this. Um, there are people today who uh, would like to undermine and criticize the Westminster Doctrine of Scripture precisely because they don't like the theology that goes along with such a mindset. I think of someone like Jack Rogers, who is at Fuller, who has tried to undermine um, the adequacy of the Westminster approach to authority, saying that they were really caught up in, in scholastic categories of thought and the notion of formal authority rather than the material authority of Jesus Christ himself. Um, Rogers would like us to believe that uh, Calvin is really much better in this, and we need to go back to Calvin and get away from this scholastic Westminster approach to things. Um, I would tend to go back to Calvin and show that Calvin had a much higher view of scripture than Rogers thinks, and higher than Rogers, and that really Westminster was in line with Calvin and not uh, Jack Rogers. 
section one. We can get through, I think, uh, a little bit of this. If you have your books, turn to the confession, to section one. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit same holy in the writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Former ways of God's dealing, revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. The confession begins by dealing with general revelation using this expression, the light of nature, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave me men inexcusable. The expression light of nature occurs four other times in the confession. If you want to write them down, they're in section 6, and then sections 10, 4, 24, and 21, 1. Yes, section 6, chapter 1, then 10, section 4, 20, section 4, and 21, section 1. In this very sentence, you, you can see that the light of nature is distinct uh, from the works of creation and providence. So what is the light of nature? If you look at the proof text, Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 is cited where Paul speaks of the revelation of God in the heart of man or in the conscience of man, an internal kind of revelation. So the light of nature here apparently is an inward revelation, uh, what I think Calvin would have called uh, the sense of God that every man has. The Westminster Divines were convinced that all men had uh, God's word written on their hearts. There are certain men at the assembly, Paris and Reynolds, for instance, who have written that all men know certain things are wrong in their heart of hearts. And they listed things like bestiality and murder and lying. So, general revelation, works of God in creating the world, the created order itself, the way the world has been governed, and the internal sense of deity of the light of nature, um, the revelation of God within man. The confession begins by teaching that this revelation, this general revelation, is sufficient for a particular point. Although the light of nature, works of creation, providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. One of them the recurring questions in theology that comes back over and over again. People who have never heard the gospel, who don't know about Jesus, will they be lost, is answered in the very first sentence of the confession of faith. That's where our confession begins by saying God has revealed himself so sufficiently in general revelation that men have been left inexcusable. Of course, that is not the language of the 
spirit and divine. When did they hear that? From Paul, when he's wrong, exactly. Paul says they are without excuse. So men have been left excused because of general revelation. Supernatural special revelation is not necessary in order for men to be responsible to God or for God to be just. I would suggest to you that if you grasp this opening line, you will at least someday appreciate why Cornelius Van Til's approach to apologetics is more true to the confession than even 200 years of apologetical development in Presbyterian circles that tended to run back to a Romanist approach to apologetics and a Romanist understanding of nature and then try to tack on a, a Puritan or Calvinistic soteriology and doctrine of God. Uh, Van Til has taken very seriously that there is an epistemology asserted here that men do know God through revelation and not through natural theology taking of premises from nature that you then work into conclusions, you know, premise, premise, conclusion, not a theology, but rather a direct revelation that leaves men without excuse. Yes, God. Could you conclude that when somebody comes in and they acknowledge the boundaries of the gospel? No, because the next thing that we're going to be told is that they cannot come to a saving knowledge. The sufficiency of general revelation is that it establishes human responsibility and God's justice in condemning us for our sin. Tim. Yeah. Right, so I kind of think that the context of notion of general revelation is um, an ordinary faculty that one has for uh, uh, knowing things around oneself. Uh, for example, we see light and feel objects and so forth, not due to them being revealed to us, but just because we have a faculty that allows us to perceive uh, those things. How does general revelation? Revelation implies, seems to imply that it's, it's an action on God's part actually impresses that idea of knowledge in the mind of man as opposed to simply being a natural fact. So what's the precise definition? I would say um, that it comes closer to being intuitive than discursive. Um, in a, let's say I'm looking at the ocean. I'm up on a bluff overlooking the sea, and I see the ocean, and I'm taken with the grandeur of it, and the beauty of it, and the power of it, and so forth. Uh, the Bible, I think, teaches us that in the process of my natural faculty seeing the beauty of the ocean and the power of the ocean, I'm also introduced to the creator of the ocean and his character. Now, if someone, and many people will, if an unbeliever was sitting in here tonight, they'd say, oh, come on, how do you get from this big body of water and its power and its beauty and so forth to the triune God who condemns adultery? I wouldn't want to say it's because I've got a premise about water that leads to another premise about sex, that leads to another premise about adultery, I mean, a conclusion about adultery, that sort of thing. I think rather it's that in seeing what God has made, I'm also introduced to the maker and his character. So there's an intuitive knowledge of God that comes through the use of my natural faculties. I'd also say that because I do know God in the same time that I know myself and know the world around me, that in the use of my natural faculties, I can go and see certain things and start drawing conclusions like there couldn't be this many stars all harmoniously working without there being a God who controls the universe. But you see, I would maintain the reason I read, the reason that I have that line of reasoning is because I first know this God in my heart of hearts. 
and then I start seeing the world in light of that revelation. But it's not that I, I take individual observations, you know, Thomas Aquinas, that it's motion, uh, or Aristotle, well, Aristotle is worse, but, you know, so there's motion, there must be a first mover, there must be a God. That isn't what the confession is talking about. But the vast majority of Presbyterians, I, I think, have made the mistake of saying, oh, well, now we have a natural theology as the basis of our apologetics. And so this brings me back to me. I think the presuppositional approach of Cornelius Van Til is closer to the genius of the confession, even though historically that may not have been um, the most popular approach. Well, I said that general revelation is sufficient. Um, let me take just five more minutes and we'll stop tonight. The important thing is to say that general revelation is insufficient. It's sufficient to ground human responsibility in the justice of God and condemning us for our sins, but it is insufficient for what reason? Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Just last week in the presbytery exam, I pressed for a moment on a candidate on this point. I asked him how is general revelation not sufficient to this just the will of salvation? I said, well, we see a mother hen dying for her chicks. Doesn't that in some way show us in nature, you know, the graciousness of God and substitutionary comfort and all that? And I, I, was, try, I was trying to see how solid he'd be. And he, he was right. He said, no, I, that is not a revelation of God. Uh, the confession teaches that the natural world shows us God's holy character and therefore condemns us for our sin. It does not show us the grace of God for our salvation. There is no way to say in the natural world that you could learn that God would choose to freely save a people, much less send his son to do so and die on the cross, etc., etc. Uh, here's an interesting question. Was special revelation Necessary before the fall. Mike. I would venture to say no. I think most people would fall in line with that. I think that's mistaken. But most people would say special revelation means redemptive revelation. Before the fall there was redemption, therefore before the fall there was no special revelation. But let's ask, was there special revelation before the fall? Okay. Yes. What was it? Well, there had to be a revelation of who God was in the eyes of uh, Adam for him not only to understand himself and understand his, you know, relationship with Eve as being part of that um, in that relationship, but also in understanding the creation that he made more than the uh, There was also the creation that was given. So there was special revelation that was not redemptive before the fall. But after the fall, special revelation takes on a redemptive character. And the necessity of special revelation after the fall is the necessity of redemption. But let's go so further. What is the necessity of a written special revelation? Because special revelation could be God walking and talking with Adam and Eve and speaking to them. And uh, that doesn't have to be written down on a piece of paper or on a rock or a stone tablet or something. Uh, what does the confession say? Uh, about scripture special revelation and scripture are not identical they don't cover the same thing why 
because there is special revelation outside of Scripture. I'm going to give you some illustrations of special revelation that we don't find in the Bible. Yeah. And Jesus said much more than what you find in red letters in the New Testament. If you have a red letter Bible, and not that I recommend it, but uh, Jesus uh, said quite a few things, and all that's the Word of God Himself. Okay. Think of other special revelation. In fact, the Bible refers to words of prophets uh, that uh, we don't find in the Bible. So, so special revelation is not identical with Scripture, but Scripture is a form of special revelation. Now we have the necessity of revelation after the fall, and then what's the necessity of inscripturating special revelation according to the confession? Notice this that after God declared his will into his church for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and malice of Satan in the world, he committed the same holy into writing. And this is what makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. So there's two kinds of necessity to be noted. The necessity of redemptive special revelation that goes beyond general revelation and the necessity of inscripturating special revelation because of what? Would you, would, how would you feel if, um, if the gospel that you trust for your salvation had been left to the malice of Satan and the corruption of uh, human sinful nature and so forth? How would you feel if it was just by word of mouth that God gives a piece of for our sins? <laughs> well, actually, our Christian brothers in, in other places uh, are probably better than their theology, you know, what they proclaim to be their theology. They may say one thing, but in the end, it's the Bible that they're relying on for the knowledge of their salvation. But I'm trying to get a point across here. The reason God gave us our Bibles, uh, according to the Confession, is that if He just left it to sinful men to pass the word along, we're all, as I look around in this room, we're all pretty much of the same mind theological. And I would not trust my children's salvation to a message I gave to Doug over here that wound around the tables and came out over here. Because I, I know human nature well enough, even good people like yourselves, we get things messed up, we do things differently. And so God, realizing that, committed it to writing. Think about the providence of God and that uh, he made us so that we could understand symbolic things like life and, and gave us the ability to do this with us and all that. It makes a big difference. Any questions about the sufficiency and insufficiency of general revelation? I was under the impression that the insufficiency of general revelation was the sinfulness of God. And that's why I would answer it. The question the way I did ask you was special revelation in the Okay. Um, I'll give you an article and then we'll put answer. You might take a look at Dan Hill's article in the Infallible Word, where he talks about natural revelation and so forth, and points out that even before the fall, God gave special revelation to aid man in interpreting general revelation. And so that the necessity is not completely that of sin. That, that, uh, the necessity of, um, of special revelation 
comes in after the fall of the salvation would not be known otherwise. But there was a necessity of this special revelation he thought. Okay. It's been a little bit longer than I usually do. I'll keep our meetings, you know, pretty much to the point one to be in my house and twice, but also not to overload you. In two weeks when we come back, I would like you all to have mastered of the questions three through six or one through six if you're ambitious. And in the proof text, uh, we'll continue the lessons for doctrine and scripture.